sometimes we think about making paths straight and all that stuff, and, and, and sometimes when we have a, a passage like this, we, we want to make John say something like, fill the potholes, and he's actually talking about moving earth, doing, um, doing an engineering work that, that shapes the way um, we see things or levels things that help us see as well. It, it, it's, it's much bigger. It's much more like that. Um, and I think it's really important to have that in our minds because most of my Christian life, I feel like uh, I am um, doing some fine-tuning, and then you come up against the prophets, and, um, well, they mess with you. It will mess with you well. So this Advent, and for the rest of this year, um, when you see a truck, kids, and big kids alike, when you see construction, I want you to think of John the Baptist crying out, prepare the way of the Lord, make your paths straight, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be straight, and the rough places shall become level. And all flesh will see the salvation of God because of that constructive work, construction work. So, geological road construction to prepare. Today we want to explore, last week we explored who John was and who John was talking about. And today we want to really enter into the message. What is this preparation, these acts in keeping with repentance or fruit in keeping with repentance, that he's talking about between you brood of vipers and so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Those are the bookends of his prophecy. John's ministry was good news, but it starts off sounding a lot bad newsy. It, it, it sure seems like the good news could be gooder after being called a snake and all. And yet it's still good news, and we want to attend to that. We want to look to that. And yeah, so we've got to remember who he's talking to that his primary audience is the people of God. That'd be like him coming to church and preaching to us, or better, if we get it right, it's like he's, in a, uh, he's on the other side of the river, so he's, on the, he's in Davie County, and he's at a place where, um, let's say it's at a park or, or some uh, open area, and we're all going out there, and we go out there thinking we're moving towards repentance, and his first words to us are, you family of snakes. He's been saying that we've become complacent, aligning with the empire, sold out to its conveniences, living on the right side, giving loyalty to a puppet king, Herod, and a not lord of lords, Caesar. And it's vital for grasping the good news John preaches. The good news of the, of the Messiah requires God's people to be the first to repent, both in his coming and his second coming. And so this amounts to us hearing some bad news about our possible sins and our idolatry. But it's good news because we have worshiped and worked toward something that cannot, has, cannot fill us up. And there's this beautiful term, repentance, that is to turn away from those things and to the God who truly loves us. So he goes about doing the business of a prophet. And we talked about it a little bit, but I want to make sure you understand that prophets' job are to disrupt us. They are to disrupt the status quo. 
We name streets and parks after prophets after they're dead. We reject them and kill them while they're alive. Before we venerate them, we do violence to them. And that, there's all sorts of history of that in the Bible itself and in just regular old history. But we need prophets to declare to us when we are wayward as a kindness to us. Friends, if the prophetic voices that you like most in your life are cheering you on, then they're not your prophetic voices. Prophets make us uncomfortable and angry, and they threaten our way of being. So it's precisely when we get enraged, we must check our reactions and get faithful friends to help us assess, along with the scriptures, if that anger is born of virtue or more idolatry. But it will cause us angst. So today's going to sting a bit, and I feel a little bit bad, except for that it had to sting me all week and last week. So misery loves company. It's Advent. I would rather talk about sweet little eight-pound, seven-ounce baby Jesus <laughs> and donkeys and romanticized journeys, journeys to soft-lit barns that don't smell like barns. And a, a woefully inaccurate visions of silent night, for some reason Jesus doesn't cry. But that's not in Scripture, and it's not how we prepare for Messiah to come the first or the second time. Jesus comes amid regional infanticide. As in, to a people who are being oppressed. And amid that oppression and the murder of family members, John starts in on the people who are being oppressed and murdered. It is a beautiful, difficult sting of the gospel preparation. And he responds in this crazy way that would be so shocking. And he says, you can come out here to this desert and you can have a religious ritual of baptism. But this is not repentance alone. Repentance looks like something, tastes like something. Sees, you see something in it. And I'm going to tell you what it looks like. Because they've gone, what do we do? And so he answers them. And so what he says is, bulldoze your self-deception and presumption. And build honesty and humility. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What an invitation. Who told you to come out here and repent? Somehow he's responding to them by going, hey, there's something else out here. It's an image of a forest, right? Uh, uh, a fire in the forest driving the snakes out into the wilderness. And he's like, who told you the fire was coming? And he's speaking in a way that says, watch out. Even as God's people, we need to check ourselves for the difference between godly sorrow and like fear of getting caught. He, does, he says, you can't come out here thinking you're pretty p good people who need a fine-tuning of their religious life. An adjustment on the spiritual equalizer will do. No. John is blowing up their categories for their very lives, and we have to lean into this. We have to ask hard questions like, what if the practices and, and the way we participate and even some of our beliefs about Christianity or Jesus are woefully inaccurate? What if the prophets are right and what we're calling flourishing or a good church might be leading some of us in peril, including your pastor? 
don't begin to say to yourselves, he says, that, well, you're Abraham's father, uh, or Abraham is our father. For I tell you, God is able to make these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So this is a Jewish rabbi talking to his brothers and sisters, both ethnically and religiously. He says, don't presume it's all okay because of the covenant. Your religious heritage is a circumcision of the heart as well, not just of lineage. Don't come out here with your neat little religious ritual and think it's all good. We have to prepare for Messiah to come, not by mouthing the right words or doing the right rituals, but by bearing fruit that is produced by the very repentance we claim we have. So he says, bulldoze the religious bull. And he says, we're not free from repenting. We're actually the first to repent, which actually prepares the way. So we don't presume anything, but we embrace humility. And so it means that the bad news of the gospel for church folk is that we have to abandon all thoughts of being nice, polite, good, or better than them people. And we have to take a nice hard look at how what we profess often lacks a correspondence to the way we live. I know for me, sometimes my repentance is really about emotional catharsis or managing a reputation and not always about having acts or fruit that bears that. It's the motions of religious heritage without the reality of God in our lives. It's lip service with no heart. We must not just, uh, or ju- we must rid ourselves of the thought that just because we know our way around a Bible or church lingo or know the frills of church radio or whatever it is, that we're good. Christianity is not safe for the whole family. So if that's not enough of a gut check, he goes on. But he's saying, what's happening here is, what should you do? Well, true repentance is of your mouth and of your heart and of your hands. That's when you know true repentance occurs. And so he says, bulldoze plenty and build parity to the crowd. So they ask, what are we going to do? And well, if you've got two tunics, share with one that has none. And if you got more food than you need, give it to another. Two tunics meant you were reasonably well off. Same with knowing what you're going to eat for the next couple of days. If that was the reason, you're, you're doing all right. And so he's saying, hey, I would like for you as a church, as a God's people, to turn from plenty and begin to build parity and equality between you and your fellow, uh, your sibling in the kingdom of God. So building equity becomes a fruit of repentance and trust in God. This was so hard this week for me. It's Christmas, for goodness sake. I'm buying all sorts of stuff. I don't just have two tunics. I have like seven. I have three cars for three drivers. I have shirts I haven't worn in a year. A man is amazing at purging our closets. We give away a ton of stuff, but I still have two tons. We throw away much more food than we should, and I'm not trying to do that awful, oh, they're starving kids in Africa, guilt trip on you. They're actually starving kids that are your neighbors. But the point here is not just the redistribution of wealth or foods or material goods, though that is part of the kingdom ethic. 
that is part of the church's manifestation of the coming of Messiah. But this is also a call to a type of community. Think about how this went down. Both the poor and of the plenty, both people of poverty and plenty were in the crowd. So when John says what he says, it's like, look around, y'all. Some of you have been given a double portion of tunics and food. Give your siblings in Christ or your siblings in Yahweh your extra. It is a fundamentally relational generosity. I don't know what this means for governments or civic institutions. I don't really care. I care what it means for the church. It means that no one in here goes hungry without clothes or shelter, ever. Friends, we have plenty of money in the deacon's fund. If you are not making it, tell one of them. They will walk with you. If we run it dry, we'll ask for more. Again and again and again. They'll be more than glad to help you figure out what to do and how to do it. Then it's not toxic charity, but relational generosity. I saw a church service in Atlanta one day where they're talking about this kind of, he who has much can give and who has none. And literally at the front, they started, they started saying what needs were and what people had. I have $3,000 in credit card bill I need help on. And someone else in the church is going, I got you. And they just start doing this. And there's like 40 people up front and everybody's just, it's, it's all happening organically. Nobody's cared about 10% or uh, tax write-offs or anything like that. It's just all happening right there. I was like, that's about as a Christian thing I've ever seen in my life. So, you know, I'll wait. <clears throat> if we don't do it that way, I don't care, but we got to do it. It's relational. This is why the, the overflow shelter is such an amazing thing. It is built to be relational, to be over and over again with people that we would know over time. And that's why we call them guests, and that's why we eat with them. They're, and it's not just, just so you know, it's not just to show the love of Jesus to people who don't know Jesus. Many of those brothers are our brothers and sisters in Jesus. So together we show the power of Jesus by creating parity because we have two tunics and we give one away. We have more food than we need, so we give it to them. That actually declares the love of Jesus. And for those who are not brothers, they get to see the love of Jesus in a different way. But the whole watching world goes, oh, these are how people in the kingdom live. So I got kind of caught up in the fourth century this week. <clears throat> you know, my rabbit trails. I wanted to hear from a different perspective about how people thought about poverty and plenty in the church. And the fourth century is a little bit like ours in terms of a huge empire, set of empires, and a dwindling and crumbling of power structures. And the church is in an awkward place in that. But Ambrose from Milan, your brother is naked and crying, and you stand confused over your choice of attractive floor covering. This hit so hard, I literally bought a new rug this week. I literally bought a new rug. Now, the other one was, you know, we pulled out of a dumpster at a job site and yada, yada, yada. I can give you all the justified reasons why we wanted one. It was tattered, it was messed up, eight years old, you know, whatever, out of the dumpster, you know. That doesn't matter. Basil the Great, or Basil the Great, the bread you do not use is the hungry's bread. The garment hanging in your wardrobe is the person who is naked's garment. 
The money you keep locked away is the money for the poor. Chris Austin, one of the great preachers of the fourth century, when you see the man who has encountered the shipwreck of poverty, do not judge him. Do not seek for him to give an account of his life, but free him from his misfortune. I told you this was a convicting week. Just trying to share the wealth. There's another fourth century dude. His name was Saint Nicholas. A.K.A. Saint Nick, A.K.A. Who becomes Santa Claus. Do you know the story behind Christmas presents? There was a father in his town, probably in his church, who had become shipwrecked in poverty. And his three daughters, the sons, the father's three daughters, were on the verge of having to turn to a life of crime on the streets. You got it? Unless he could marry them off. Because back then, in order to marry somebody off, you had to have money that went with your daughter. It's a dowry, it's a terrible system, but it was. So what Nicholas did was place a gold, coin, a gold coins in three small bags. And for three nights in a row, he secretly sent a gold coin down the chimney. One for one daughter, the next day for the other daughter, the next day for the third daughter. And now they would be able to marry and be kept from shipwreck of poverty. This is the kind of paradigm that marks God's church, not just in the fourth century, but now. So he turns to another fruit-bearing paradigm with the conversation between the tax collectors and the soldiers as well. And he says, I want you to bulldoze greed and abuse of power and build justice and contentment. Tax collectors, what are we going to do? Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers, what do you want us to do? Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. Again, these are all God's people. These are all Jewish people. It was a given back then that tax collectors would skim off the top. It was kind of just like part of the job. And a good tax collector would just skim a little bit off the top, and the bad ones would gouge. But it was just part of it. John is calling for kind of a radical sense of justice while doing our jobs. And then Herod's soldiers were often like rogue cops who, would, um, who did what they wanted, extortion and bribes. But the fruit of repentance that he is seeing is to check out this, look at this to see if your repentance is actually from God itself. It's not just about corruption, but the greed. Because all the stealing was stealing, but it was not punishable. So he says, repentance fruits out in a kind of vocational faithfulness that is beyond the industry standards. So we don't just trust the words of our repentance, but also its fruits, that we have to take a hard look at our ways, our industries, our labors, our very business practices, our participation, and all that stuff. And y'all, this is overwhelming to me. I don't know exactly how this is supposed to look. I want you who are in business and in these kinds of situations to talk with one another, to, 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 to come return to the Lord together and help figure this out together. What is the church's system in this? And what, what does repentant church, church, repentance, repentant church's system look like? 
Look, profit is not bad. In fact, it's good, but more profit is not necessarily good. Now, I know economically, I'm probably talking foolishness, but I'm not talking economically. What if we saw profit as an opportunity to bless our employees first or maybe give a discount to our, the, the consumer instead of just get a raise? Just don't go with the industry standard alone on the fine, because the finance policy of the kingdom of God is generosity, to bulldoze greed and build contentment. And then there's the bulldozing of the abuse of our powers and building justice. The use of power towards the powerless instead of against the powerless. Our, what would it mean? The corruption and greed are just so much a part of our lives. What if we ask this question regularly among ourselves in small groups? And then ask the question who are, of people who are very different than us, maybe cross-cultural workers or whatever that can help us with some of the perspectives and our kind of our cultural idols. I do not pretend to have an authoritative answer to these things, but John is clear that true repentance means we will take a hard look about how we might abuse power and that repentance creates a desire for justice. Back to St. Nicholas, one of the other things he's famous for is that there was going to be an execution in his town of three men. According to Michael the Archimandrite, three innocent men were condemned to death by the governor Eustathius, and they're about to be executed, and St. Nicholas comes in and slaps the sword down to the ground and, uh, and unchains them, or, yeah, unchains them, and he starts rebuking the bribed um, juror in the crowd, and they go away free. It's a, it's a, uh, reactive to injustice kind of thing. But, but that's not the only way we do it. We also have to like, be proactive about bringing justice and love to bear, mercy to bear. Do you know what this slide is? Do you know what this is a symbol of? Come on. Pawn shop, thank you, you said that. Very good, very good. I've, I've been in a few. Um, it's a pawn shop. But you didn't know that St. Nicholas was the patron saint of pawn shops. But you also didn't know that pawn shops were started by the Franciscan monks as an alternative lending system to the loan sharks of their day. Usually somewhere between 4% and sometimes as high as 10%. And they were giving loans and not making profit. They would go back to give more loans and those three balls, those three gold coins, is what marks a pawn shop. St. Nicholas's three gold coins. It's changed a bit. Even when you couldn't pay, they would sell whatever you pawned. And they would never give you but 60% on it so that when they sold it, they could pay the debt and give you back anything extra. You would walk into a pawn shop. Actually, it was called a Montes Pietatus, Pietatius or something like that. I don't know. Don't know Latin. And there'd be priests or monks, Franciscans there, to help you in your shipwrecked life. That's what it was. So, there it is. The message of John... And God's people were actually struck to the heart, it says. 
they were baptized and asked how they could, could, could continue to live this out. And the bad news was bad, that, that, that we were more self-deceived, more presumptuous, and more self-centered than we could possibly imagine. But then there is this good news. Even amid, I see John as like this big old beard and kind of spaddle drip beards talking about repentance, you know? He's, he's got to be odd looking. Big old repentant placard, you know? But in this bearing of fruit and keeping with repentance to the church, and yet that's not the totality of it. And somehow Luke, he captions what he's doing as a freedom of good news. And it's a good news because the idols that we serve destroy us. They are not good gods. They feel like it, and there's a payoff, but it's not real, and it's not forever. And it's a hard gift of clarity. And what he's doing is he's saying there is one who is coming to make all these things right and good and make you right and good. Jesus, the one who doesn't bring ritual cleansing but brings the spirit and a purifying fire of love, transforms the fires that would be meant for our destruction and our harm to become a purifying, refining fire like with gold. The good news is all this preparation is about making way for Messiah to come, the one who will forgive us of our sins and free us as the long-awaited one. As I said before, repentance means to turn. And it's true and it's clear that John wants God's people to turn away from religious games and plenty and abusive power and greediness And he really does want us to see and bear fruit of justice, parity, honesty, humility, and contentment. But you don't turn from this to the bearing of of fruit. You turn from this to Jesus. And Jesus begins to bear that fruit in you. He transforms you. It's not just turning away from sin. It's turning to Messiah. Friends, those of you who are not Christians, you're kind of somewhat off the hook on this one because he's talking to God's people. There is an application for you about repentance, and, um, and we can talk about that if you want to. But feel free to also look into this. I, when I say off the hook, that's not my notes. What I mean is the same way that we make room for the king, the long-awaited king, you will also have to repent in order to receive his love and kindness. But go ahead and look over our shoulders and see and hear us try to wrestle with this. And Christians, please don't turn from sin toward the treadmill of empty duty. Don't turn from sin toward despair and self-hatred. Don't turn toward sin toward like some Christian subculture. Don't turn towards sin and develop a, a, an extensive fruit inspection plan. Don't turn, towards, turn away from sin and do anything else but turn to Jesus, the forgiver of our sins, the one who makes us clean and fruitful, who abides in us and us in him, the one who bears so much fruit. One last story of St. Nicholas, and then a closing statement or two. 
St. Nicholas in the 4th century was part of the Council of Nicaea. It was a big debate about who Jesus was. Was he truly the Son of God? Was he truly God himself? Or was he some variation of it? And this one's more legend. It's kind of less attested to than the other stories I've told you. But rumor has it, or legend has it, and there's some reasons to believe this happened, is that during the arguments at one point, your jolly old Saint Nick actually backhanded one of the heretics at the area, at Nicaea, that he was so frustrated that Jesus would not be seen clearly, that he did a kind of ritual slapping of the guy and basically said, I need to knock some sense into you. Jolly old Saint Nick. Why? Because he wanted to win an argument? No, but because like John, all of our lives are to point to the beauty and glory of who Jesus is. And he wasn't going to let anything get in the way of that. I do not recommend this in future debates. I'm just telling you what happened. What would it mean Ask our non-Christian friends, what would it mean if we sat in John's message of the preparation for the second coming like the people of God had to do in the first? Not just to get ourselves right. Jesus will get us right. But that this repentance over power and greed would actually show the glory of Jesus that our own repentance would be an evangelistic message to the world of who our God is. That wouldn't it be about us at all but Him. That He would be glorified because when we're bearing fruit of repentance, we're bearing witness to Jesus as Messiah. And how beautiful and glorious how interesting it would be, painful, but how glorious it would be. If you were in the congregational meeting, I said, I think, hey, there's something about this time and space that we're in at Redeemer where it feels like we have a little more in the canteen, you know, we have a, have a little bit more energy, some of the resources are coming together in really nice ways, um, I'm really thankful for all that, and yet, there seems to be something that the Lord's doing and that we have to kind of get along with the Spirit in some ways. And I didn't, I said, I don't even know how to name it fully yet. But I tell you what, I think one of the things it will include is a profound and deep prophetic-like repentance so that we'll bear not just fruit, but witness to our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.